Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? It's a question that every person throughout the centuries has had to answer. The seeker, the confused, the skeptic, the heartbroken, the despairing, and you. But it's not a one-time question, as many think. It's a question we must answer daily. Straight ahead, get ready for Encounters with Jesus, a refreshing conversation. Welcome to The Land and the Book. Our host is a Middle East expert and Old Testament scholar, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger with a question. What is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important, and, and what does it mean for you? Charlie? Yeah, John, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. Well, let's turn our attention now toward current events from the Middle East. Israel's election process continued to lurch forward this past week with plot twists and turns worthy of a mystery novel. <laughs> What's the latest on their progress, Charlie, toward new elections and hopefully a new government? Well, the week brought attempts by the opposition to bypass elections completely and form a new conservative government in the current Knesset, but they couldn't muster the 61 votes needed. The week also saw members of the current coalition try to push forward legislation to prohibit anyone indicted from serving as prime minister. The law was designed to keep Benjamin Netanyahu from running, but it too was dropped. Uh, the bill to disperse the Knesset and hold new elections did eventually make its way through the various committees and readings and finally passed into law midweek in spite of wrangling over a myriad of procedural details. And the one thing that kept it all from being delayed even more was the reality that if they didn't disperse the Knesset by the end of June, the legislative provisions that applied Jewish law to the half million Israelis living in the West Bank would expire. By dissolving the Knesset, the law remains on the books until the next coalition is established. The election is scheduled after the end of the High Holy Days in the fall, which means the list of candidates for each party must be handed in to the election committee by mid-September. From now until then, the different parties will be conducting polls to determine how best to fine-tune their message to attract voters. Some parties are already approaching other parties on the possibility of combining forces to help ensure they'll receive enough votes to enter the Knesset. A party must receive at least 3.25% of the total votes cast, or they fail to get any seats in the next Knesset. And remember, even after the election, the party with the most votes doesn't automatically take over. In the last election, Benjamin Netanyahu's party had the largest number of seats, but he was unable to cobble together a coalition of at least 61 seats. It was a combination of five other parties, Lapid's Yeshatid, Bennett's Yamina, Sa'ar's New Hope, Gantz's Blue and White, and Lieberman's Yisrael Betenu, plus the addition of Labor, Moretz, and the Islamic Ra'am Party that brought the most recent government to power with a razor-thin majority of 61 seats. Each party will campaign to get as many seats as possible, but they'll also attack other parties to try and siphon off votes. Hmm. And that can even at times include parties that would be natural allies in any coalition. 
uh, John, it's going to be an interesting process from now until uh, late October, early November when those elections are finally held. Well, the other focus of attention in the Middle East this past week was Iran and the resumption of talks on their nuclear program. They also look to be a key topic of discussion in President Biden's upcoming visit to Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, With talks again beginning, are the Iranians serious about returning to the previous nuclear agreement, or are they just kind of stalling for time as they continue to race forward with their nuclear program? Well, yeah, in addition to the uh, negotiations that were going on in Vienna, uh, another channel were opened up between the U.S. and Iran indirectly in Doha. And uh, we'll see what happens because those just started this week. Now, Israel has already denounced Iran's sudden offer to resume negotiations. They're calling it a ploy. Part of the reason for Iran's sudden openness is they're running out of time. The International Atomic Energy Agency's Board of Governors condemned Iran for turning off the cameras in their facilities. In fact, they said if the cameras weren't turned on by the first week in July, the agency would no longer be able to support the idea of any nuclear agreement and saying that that could be viable. Now that, coupled with President Biden's upcoming visit to Israel and Saudi Arabia, raised the potential stakes for Iran. The U.S. appears to be pulling together a NATO-like coalition of Gulf states and Israel to oppose them. While military intervention still seems unlikely, it might be a gamble Iran is unwilling to make. If they agree to go back to the nuclear treaty, it's only scheduled to block their work for another two and a half years. In 2025, Iran would be free to build a massive and now likely underground complex of high-speed centrifuges to churn out highly enriched uranium. In addition to pushing the West to not renew the agreement, Israel has also been actively working to disrupt Iran's plans for nuclear development. Several high-profile assassinations have taken place in Iran, and Iran responded by having the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps replace their intelligence chief and the commander of the unit that protects the country's supreme leader. Now, this suggests they're nervous at the way Israel seems to be able to penetrate their security. So what's going to happen? Well, right now, no one knows. But I think we should watch right now to see what the developments will be as these nuclear talks resume. And watch to see what comes out of President Biden's visit to Israel and Saudi Arabia. Finally, I think we should listen for any other disruptions or assassinations within Iran itself. There's a lot happening, and uh, we'll know more details, I think, in the next few weeks. Maybe you've just joined us. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and on this first of four segments, we take a look at current events, stories based in the Middle East. Moving further west, it looks like tensions are increasing in North Africa. What's happening in Algeria, Morocco, and Libya that we need to know about, Charlie? You know, this is just about the time you think you know one area, another pops up. Well, back in November, Israel signed a defense and security memorandum of understanding with Morocco. Algeria is very concerned about the growing military cooperation between Israel and Morocco. Algeria and Morocco each claim territory along their common border, but the real battle between the two countries is over leadership in the region. Algeria's military forces were considered to be stronger, and Hezbollah has provided Algeria with weapons and training. But now, Israel's agreement to provide drones and electronic warfare, including a counter-drone system, threatens Algeria's leadership and their plans for regional domination. Meanwhile, just to Algeria's east, the conflict in Libya continues to simmer. 
Turkey has forces in Libya supporting the UN-recognized Islamist government. And President Erdogan is pushing to have his troops remain in Libya for another 18 months. The fear is that if those troops leave, the Islamist government could be replaced by the government in eastern Libya, supported by Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states. The Islamist government in Tripoli is headed by a prime minister who's supported by Turkey, while the parliament, based in eastern Libya, has appointed a different prime minister. Now, the ultimate solution to Libya's problems is fair and free national elections. But the interim prime minister blocked those elections last December. Now, unless all sides can agree on a format and date for new elections, Libya could again descend into civil war. All this to say that from Egypt's border with Libya all the way to the northwest tip of Africa, the political and religious lines are continuing to fracture. Well, can eating a chocolate treat lower your blood sugar? Apparently, a startup company in Israel believes it can. It's developing a product that might be able to help the 88 million Americans now classified as pre-diabetic. Charlie, tell us about this sweet story coming out of Amazing Israel. Now, this is a story about a company that I think we can all hope succeeds. After all, who doesn't like chocolate? Uh, The company's called Solvit, that's S-O-L-V-E-A-T, and their goal is to produce functional foods with active herbs to prevent disease and promote health. The CEO was managing an herbal biotech company in China when he was diagnosed with prediabetes. A local doctor advised him to take an herbal medicine. Well, the good news is the herbs brought his condition under control. But the bad news is the herbs tasted awful. He described it as a mixture of bitterness and sourness. Out of that problem came opportunity and this new venture. Solvi uses several methods to mask the bitter taste of the herbs. They then combine the herbs into dark chocolate squares from a boutique Israeli chocolatier. Among the first group of volunteers who tried the product, blood sugar levels dropped by 24%. Wow. Uh, clinical trials are currently underway. A solvate doesn't make the finished product. Their business plan is to produce the herbal extract with a consistent potency that manufacturers can then add into their functional foods. Solvate's goal is to launch the product commercially in Israel by the end of this year. Now, it's important to understand they're not claiming to be able to cure diabetes, Hmm. but they do claim their product will help an individual maintain a healthy blood sugar level. Eating chocolate while improving one's blood sugar level, well, John, that is definitely a sweet idea from Amazing Israel. Sounds good to me, Charlie. And that's a look at current events. Full program today, as always. Up next, a conversation about encounters with Jesus. Then we'll take a look at questions that have come into our inbox. And finally, we'll wrap it up with Charlie's devotion. So hope you'll stick with us for all of it here on The Land and the Book. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? It's a question that every person throughout the centuries has had to answer. The seeker, the confused, the skeptic, the heartbroken, the despairing, and you. But it's not a one-time question, as many think. It's a question we must answer daily. Coming up, Encounters with Jesus, a conversation you'll be glad you stuck around for. And I'm John Geiger with this quick thought on reaching out to Jewish friends and coworkers and neighbors. Helping you help your Jewish friend find Yeshua in the Old Testament. That's our challenge as we sit down with Michael Rydelnik, general editor of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. Where would you take us? I would say, you know, so often people say Jesus was some sort of victim. No, this was a choice that the Hebrew prophets said 
he would make to suffer for us. It says in Isaiah 50, when it talks about the suffering servant, it's a first-person kind of statement, a poem written in the first person. He says, I gave my back to those who beat me mm-hmm. and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. Isaiah 50, verse 6, what he is saying is, I willingly suffered. I did not go to the cross as a victim. It was my choice. That's what the Lord Jesus taught. No man takes my life, but I lay it down willingly. He gave himself for us because it was his choice. He was not a victim of oppression. He was one who chose. He could have called those angels to deliver him, but he chose to die for us. Our thanks to Michael Rydelnik, professor of Jewish studies here at the Moody Bible Institute, joining us on The Land and the Book. J.R. Hudberg is a writer and executive editor with Our Daily Bread Ministries where he superintends the Discovery Series, a collection of topical booklets on theological truths distributed around the world. I've got some in my own home. He's also an adjunct professor in Old Testament, New Testament, and theology. J.R. and his wife and their two sons live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book, J.R. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. You know, most of us don't think of our Christian walk as an encounter with Jesus. You know, we're just trying to survive. And we're glad to have Jesus somewhere nearby if we, quote, need him. But the notion of everyday encounters with Jesus, now that's a huge thing and hugely different. Why is that lost on so many of us so much of the time? Well, John, that's a great question. I think, honestly, I think the distance between us and the original stories, the the original walking of Jesus on this earth, and even the way we've been taught and learned to read the Bible has created a distance where we look for the theological truth and we look for our application point, but we forget that Jesus was a real person and he was coming to talk and engage with real people and real problems. And so we have glossed over the stories. We've glossed over the skin and the flesh of Jesus, except for when we talk about the incarnation, then it's real. Mm -hmm. But in the reality of daily life, he kind of loses his personhood. He loses that, I'm coming to you in your moment of need. And so I, I think it's important that we we kind of relive those stories. We put ourselves as much as possible in the sandals or shoes or bare feet of the person <laughs> to whom Jesus was speaking. In the book, you challenge us to ask the question, why do I seek Jesus? Uh, J.R., I'm afraid that however I try to spin my answer, uh, it usually smacks of selfishness. I seek Jesus because I need to be clean, I seek Jesus because I need his peace. I seek Jesus because I need his wisdom, and on and on. Talk to me about my issue here. Well, I don't think you have an issue, John. I think as we look at the stories of Scripture, that's the same reason that most people came. Those are the same reasons that they came. They wanted to be clean, and Jesus didn't chastise them for that. Jesus welcomed them and met those needs. Remember when Jesus introduced his ministry you know, he quoted from Isaiah, and he said, I've come to do these things for the people, you know, to to give sight to the blind, to free the prisoner. Those were the very immediate needs that Jesus came to meet. And those are the reasons that we come to him. Those are the reasons that people in Scripture came to him, and Jesus welcomed them. He met them in that moment of need, but he met them at a greater need as well. Hmm. So the woman, the woman at the well who needed acceptance, who needed to be loved, she found that love in Jesus, but she found a Savior as well. She found the Messiah, not just someone who wasn't going to judge her for her past. 
Uh, a bit more on this question, why do I seek Jesus? In the book, you make the observation that sometimes our answer reflects who we want Jesus to be rather than who he really is. What do you mean here? In my own struggles with my encounters with Jesus, with accepting Jesus on his terms, I've found that usually I come to Jesus for that moment, and that after I've had that moment, I walk away from that encounter, and that's it. So when, I'm, when we talk about things like I look for the Jesus that I want, that's part of the problem is we take the Jesus that we want, but we don't take the Jesus that actually comes to meet us. Mm. So we don't get the Messiah that comes. We get the miracle worker. We want the miracle worker. We don't necessarily want, we, we want the savior, but maybe not the king. We want yes. the, you know, we want the giver of sight, but we don't want the rabbi who is going to teach us how we live in response to God. Yeah. I think that's such a great point. We're talking with J.R. Hudberg, who has written the challenging book, Encounters with Jesus. Another tough question you force us to wrestle with. Are there areas in your life where you give lip service to Jesus, but secretly rebel? Now, you're almost starting to sound a little bit like John Wesley here. Any influence here from him? Uh, yeah, I am a big fan of Wesley. Um, and again, it's that moment of, of challenge from the lips of Jesus himself, you know, when he is... Um, telling the Pharisees, he's telling uh, people in his own time that you acknowledge me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these stories, as I worked through the Gospels, you know, I'm I'm forced to see myself in them. Mm -hmm. And what am I doing that is similar to this? And and the idea that, you know, the Pharisees who were the religious leaders, and, and honestly, I think sometimes get a bit of a, of a short straw. They were trying to protect the Jewish people. If you look at the statement after the resurrection of Lazarus, where if people follow him, the Romans will come in and take away everything. I think that was a legitimate concern for them. They were actually concerned about losing their identity, losing their heritage, losing mm -hmm. the temple. And so they were acting in self-preservation, yes, but I think they were acting also in what they thought was for the good of the people. Mm -hmm. Now, in God's sovereign plan, it had a different end. But that's the kind of thing that can happen to us is we look short-sightedly at what we think is what God wants, and yet underneath, perhaps we're, we're just being selfish. I want to hold on to my power mm -hmm. as well. You know, Jesus, be my, be my Savior. Jesus, be my guide. Be Jesus, be my Lord except for in this one area. I, I want to keep this <laughs> area right. to myself. Uh, you know, and when we actually struggle with those areas, when we have to examine ourselves in the illumination of a God who lives in light, then we have to accept this is where I am. And these are things that I have not yet surrendered to Jesus, whether it's my dreams, whether it's my deep secrets, my penchants for, for certain types of sin that I just don't want to give over. I, I, will, I will continue to ask for forgiveness, but I don't want to give him mm. reign in that part of my life. I'll just do the forgiveness thing. That's huge. Continue to ask for forgiveness, but not really seek change. J.R. Hudberg is a writer and executive editor with our Daily Bread Ministries, where he superintends the Discovery Series booklets. I bet you've read one yourself, and he's written the book Encounters with Jesus. Yet another tough question that you force us to address, how do you respond when Jesus doesn't do what you think he should? Uh, lots of listeners right now are in that boat, Jr. Help them make sense of the fact that maybe Jesus doesn't seem to make sense to them right now. What are they to do? Uh, it's the story of John the Baptist um, sitting in prison, and 
that's a tough one to struggle through. Yeah. Um, there was plenty of um, Jewish conceptions about what Messiah would be and do. And, you know, John would have been no stranger and probably held a number of those perceptions himself. Um, so to be a forerunner of Messiah and think that the kingdom of God is coming and yet he's languishing in a prison, a Gentile prison, um, that didn't make any sense to him, I, I think. And I think when we think of what Jesus wants in terms of the salvation of the world and for us all to live upright lives of love for God and love for neighbor, some of the things that we see happening either nationally or globally or more often personally don't seem to make a lot of sense to us. Mm -hmm. And that's where we find ourselves sitting beside John in the prison with shackles on and asking the question, are you who I thought you were or should I expect someone else? And the idea that, you know, that we have God figured out. So, you know, this very closely connects to um, one of my favorite verses in the least favorite kind of way in John chapter 539, uh, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, you study the scriptures daily, thinking that in them you have eternal life, but these are the scriptures that point to me. You know, so this idea that they have God and God's plan figured out, but are missing the actual point. They're Mm -hmm. missing what is being said there. I think we've done the same thing often enough, and I know I have. I love this uh, issue that you bring up. Do you take Jesus along wherever you go, or do you actually follow him? The difference between those two perspectives is huge. How might Christ respond to this? That's a difficult one. I, I... I don't want to put myself in in Christ's shoes and answer for him, but that's the question is once we've come to Christ and he's our savior, we kind of assume often, I think perhaps we're proceeding with what we want to do rather than (laughs) waiting for Jesus to take the lead. So the question comes from the story of, of Mary and Joseph where they left after the Passover and Jesus wasn't with them and they found him back in the temple. And it just, it made me realize that often enough we go along assuming that Jesus is going with us wherever our plans are taking us. And there's a reality to that. Let's not be terribly pedantic about it, that Jesus isn't there unless he's leading. Jesus is with us. Mm -hmm. But it may not be the place where Jesus is wanting us to go, um, where we are looking for him in the first place and doing what he has us doing rather than us asking Jesus to come along with us. I think Jesus would honestly ask me to slow down. Um, instead of being busy with my own plans, um, I think he would ask me to slow down and see what's around me and to take advantage of the opportunities that his kingdom is presenting. Um, you know, the, the story of the Good Samaritan is, is a great example of this. You know, one man yes. out of the three took the opportunity to slow down. And I think that's part of the answer is Jesus is there waiting for us to find him in where his kingdom is connecting with this world. And are we looking for those opportunities? Are we going slow enough to find those opportunities to be with Jesus? It's a pleasure to be talking today with J.R. Hudberg on The Land and the Book. I want to revisit this question of who do we say Jesus really is with our lives, not just our lips. You point out it's not just a one-time question, as many think. It's a question we must answer daily. Why is that? Because we're human, <laughs> John, I, for, for, lack of a, for lack of a better answer, um, it's a question that we should ask every morning, who am I living for and how am I living for them? Yes. You know, we come to Jesus 
in a moment. Uh, we all you know, may have this moment of surrender where we have recognized our need for Jesus. But that need for Jesus doesn't stop after that day. We shouldn't assume, or that moment, we shouldn't assume that once we've made that decision, that every subsequent decision is tailor-made to follow suit with that one. I can get up this morning and have my own thoughts and my own desires, and as we were just talking about, forget uh, that Jesus wants to meet me somewhere rather than me taking Jesus along with me and go about my day as though I'm the only one making important decisions or Mm -hmm. that my life is the only thing that matters. And so it's a daily question of who am I following? So, you know, in, in Jewish culture, in Jesus' day, you know, rabbis' disciples literally followed them around their paths, and it was a daily pursuit. It was a daily activity. And that's one of the things that I think we sometimes miss or we don't get right with our practice of devotions and, our, and those things. They're, they're great things. Yes. But sometimes they become a thing to check off our list as though, okay, I've done my following Jesus for today because I prayed for a little <laughs> bit and I read the Bible and right. you know I meditated. Rather than asking today, who am I following today? And mm. what does that mean for my interactions with people, for my attitudes toward the work situations I'm going to encounter, for the words that I use with my wife, my kids, my friends, are they reflective of the Jesus that I'm following today, not just the Jesus I chose to follow when I was 3, 6, 17, 35, however old we were when we made the decision to follow Jesus. Well, unfortunately, our time is gone, and that's a really neat point to land this conversation on. Who do you say that Jesus is every single day asking that question? Our conversation with J.R. Hudberg draws to a close, but you can check out his book, Encounters with Jesus, a link to it at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Appreciate your time, J.R. All right. It's been a pleasure, John. Thank you. And up next on The Land and the Book, Charlie Dyer with some questions. Maybe one of them is yours. Stick around for more on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, Segment 3. Boy, it's a fun time when we can get together with Charlie Dyer, our host, and you, that is, your questions. They come to us via email. I'll share that connection later. But Ava takes us to Luke 23, verse 34, wanting to know if that's original to the text of Luke. She says, a friend told me that it was debated, so I did some research, and it seems like it's original, but I wanted to get your opinion. Right, and that's the verse where Jesus says from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, the answer really can get somewhat technical, so let me try and give a simplified version of it. Uh, There is some debate over whether or not the verse was part of the original text. I personally believe the weight of evidence does show the verse to be genuine. Now, there's a few early manuscripts that don't have the passage, but other manuscripts do, and the manuscripts that have the verse are numerous and widespread geographically. Uh, The verse is also found in early translations like the Vulgate, which indicates it was part of the Greek text possessed by the person doing the translation. And the verse is quoted by a number of early church fathers, which also strongly suggests that it was in the manuscripts of Luke they were using. And all that leads me to accept its validity. I believe it was part of the original text. Ryan says, did the Hebrew people of the time of Jesus believe that incomplete bodies couldn't enter heaven? I find this puzzling. Yeah, I've never read any Hebrew source from the time of Jesus that dealt with what they believed in terms of having incomplete bodies entering heaven. But I think Jesus's words in Matthew 18 at least suggest 
they did believe individuals could enter heaven maimed. Now, here's what he said. He said, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now, in one sense, Jesus is using hyperbole there to make a point, but his statement does assume a maimed individual could enter heaven. And in his glorified body, Jesus showed the disciples the wounds in his hands and feet. So uh, the idea that they had to have a perfect body to get into eternity, well, it doesn't seem to be borne out by those events in the life of Jesus. Paul asks, how far is a Sabbath day's journey? I love the Land of the Book program and listen every week on the Moody app, by the way. So how long is it, Charlie? Well, a Sabbath day's journey was 2,000 cubits, which is roughly 3,000 feet. However, according to Alfred Edersheim in The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he said if someone deposited enough food for two meals at that distance, then he could temporarily count that as his dwelling, which would allow him to extend the boundary for another 2,000 cubits. So uh, 3,000 feet, but there were ways to get around it. (laughs) Okay. Why would David's census in 2 Samuel 24 be a sin when God is the one who told David to take the census? This question from Elsie. Well, I think we actually need to start with the parallel passage on that event, and that's 1 Chronicles 21. And there it says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take the census. I harmonize the passages by assuming God allowed Satan to tempt David to take the census. David sadly gave in to that temptation. In some ways, I, I do see similarities to the account of Job. God permitted Satan to bring temptation against both Job and David. Well, Job refused to sin. David succumbed to the temptation. Now, David appears to be motivated by pride. He wasn't facing a military threat, so he might simply have wanted to know how strong his military force was should an enemy threaten him. God had commanded Moses to count the fighting men of Israel twice during their time in the wilderness Mm -hmm. at the beginning at the end. That was to prepare Israel for battle with God giving the command. But that wasn't true for David's census, so it really was pride and ultimately came from Satan tempting him. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, as intrigued as you are as we encounter the various questions that come in via email. And you can send yours to us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. From James, is Mount Horeb closer to the Negev, since that is where the Amalekites dwelt? A lot of modern-day scholars believe Mount Sinai is located in Saudi Arabia because of what Ron Wyatt said. In Bible college, I was taught that Mount Sinai was close to St. Catherine's Monastery in the bottom half of the Sinai Peninsula, but I'm not convinced it's the real Mount Horeb since the Amalekites were up in the northern region of the Sinai. Your thoughts? Yeah, I personally see Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb actually referring to the same mountain. And I don't see the the wilderness of Shur, you know, where where it's supposedly where the Amalekites were, being up near the Negev, at least not the biblical Negev. Now, I'm not sure we can say precisely where Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb was located, though I assume it was in the general area of St. Catherine's Monastery. The theory that it was in Saudi Arabia, that just doesn't fit all the geographical details. The Amalekites were in the wilderness, but it seems they ranged across a large swath of the Sinai, especially as it abutted against Egypt, and both Moses and Saul encountered them in that general area. Question here from Mary. She says, if I understand correctly, God's greatest purpose is the glory of God rather than the salvation of people. What resource helps to explain this? Is the fact that God's glory is God's chief purpose why more people are unsaved than saved? Thanks for any thoughts on this. 
Yeah, and John, I I can't point to a single verse that says God's greatest purpose is his glory rather than salvation, but I do believe that's true. Now, part of the reason I say that's because there's more to God's created order than just the salvation of humanity. For example, uh, Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That is, God's creation of the universe, including the sun, the moon, the stars, extends beyond his plan of salvation for humanity. But the created order is part of his plan to display his glory. A second example might be the angelic realm. God's program for angels, including his conflict and judgment of Satan, uh, began before the creation of Adam and Eve. And uh, the lake of fire, in fact, was originally prepared for the devil and his angels, Jesus said. In other words, there's an angelic realm out there, and, and there's a plan for angels mm-hmm. that extends beyond our program for salvation. Uh, so uh, in terms of all of that, we don't know why God created everything he did, but certainly a lot of it's created beyond just salvation, and it's for God's glory. And in terms of why there are more unsaved than saved, well, I don't have an answer for that. Apart from the fall and the ultimate depravity and sinfulness of the human heart, God provided a way to extend salvation to all who choose to believe, but many simply refuse. And sadly, we know that's true, even though we can't fully comprehend why. Maybe somebody's listening to this conversation right now, Charlie, and they're wondering, what does it mean to be saved? How do you get saved, and why is it so important? How would you answer them? Uh, the, well, the answer I'd say is they have to know a couple things and then do one. Uh, they have to know that God loves them, that they're a sinner, they're separated from God, and that Jesus came and actually paid the price for your sin on the cross. That's why he came to earth, uh, lived a perfect life, then died and rose from the dead. And what do they need to do? They need to acknowledge that they are sinners, that Jesus did die for their sin, and then turn in faith to him and just simply say something like, Lord, I need your son. I know I'm a sinner. I know he died for me, and I want to accept that gift in my life. Please, right now, I accept Jesus as my Savior and Lord, and I turn to him in faith. Uh, And by doing something like that, that's all it takes to uh, move from death to life. That's a great explanation. Thank you, Charlie. And if you've you've done that or you've got questions about knowing Jesus, talk to a volunteer who would really enjoy talking with you at 888-NEED-HIM, 888 need him. Charlie, quick follow-up on this uh, last question. Are, are believers supposed to apply the fact that God's glory is more important than salvation when somebody who's probably unsaved dies? Uh, she says, this is a real burden as two disabled people that I've worked with in a special needs Bible study died, and I, I really don't think they trusted in Christ. I mean, it's horrible not to have Christ as Savior. What do you think? Well, I think in those kind of cases, we just need to rest in the reality that only God really knows what's in a person's heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to remember he knows best. He's always going to do what's right. And then we need to trust him, even when we don't understand. Now, again, I think of Job's words here when he was told that his family had been killed. He said, the Lord gives, the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, Job doesn't deny that he's hurting. He doesn't pretend he actually understands, but he recognizes God's sovereign and our role is to trust, obey, and acknowledge God's sovereign nature and his ultimate goodness, even in those difficult times. Here's a question maybe you haven't thought about. What is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important, and what does it mean for you? And John and our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that actually addresses that very issue. That's called The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort. And it's an engaging ebook that explains 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Now, receiving your free gift of this book is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. And when you do, you'll receive this free ebook. 
You'll also be able to learn more there about Life and Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. I want to squeeze in one more question, this from Carolyn, who takes us to Matthew 17, a young boy brought to Jesus for healing when the disciples could not cast the demon out of him. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. The disciples then questioned why they were not able to cast it out. And Jesus says, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Can you explain the prayer and fasting part? Because Jesus obviously did not spend a lot of time praying and fasting for that particular miracle to be performed. Of course, he is God, so that wouldn't be an issue for him. But what do you think? Well, I think Jesus is saying there that there are times, especially when demonic activity is involved, that believers need to make sure they're not facing such spiritual opposition in a casual or cavalier way. It requires us to sharpen our lines of communication to the Heavenly Father and keep them strong and active. Hey, don't go away. Charlie's devotional is next right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. You've heard the expression, they saved the best for last. That's often the case on The Land of the Book, where Charlie opens his Bible, takes us to a particular passage, and it has a way of making it come alive for us. Where are we headed today, uh, Charlie, in your devotional? Well, I was going to say we're heading to a Rolling Stones concert, but uh, let's just say we're going to <laughs> we're going to go visit the Rolling Stones. All right, the Rolling Stones. We're going we're to just leave you there on that cliffhanger and come back. Uh, but uh, in the meanwhile, we want to have you experience what it's like to go to the Holy Land through the eyes of somebody who's been there. I love these testimonies. We call them a, a Holy Land experience, and here's one you need to hear. In October of 1996, my husband and I had the incredible experience of taking a tour of the Holy Land with Dr. Erwin Lutzer of the Moody Church and Pastor Roy Schwartz of Chosen People Ministries. It was incredible to see all the places that we had read and studied about in Scripture all of our lives. At every historical place, Pastor Lutzer or Roy Schwartz gave a short devotional which brought it all to life again. One of the places I'll never forget was Mount Carmel, where Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal. To stand there and review that event was incredible. Six months later, at our annual spring choir concert at Moody Church, we sang Mendelssohn's Elijah with full choir and orchestra. That was among the most captivating and inspirational concerts I've ever had the privilege of singing. After having been on Mount Carmel and now singing the story, was like being at the actual event. It totally came to life in my mind. I feel this way every time our choir does a Messiah, too. That trip surely brought the Bible to life for me. Very interesting perspective. Appreciate that Holy Land experience. Well, you never know what's going to happen in one of Charlie Dyer's devotional. I'm thinking we're probably not going to hear a concert from Mick Jagger, but I don't know. I think it's time to head off to our concert with the Rolling Stones, as you say, Charlie. Yeah, I need to say at the very beginning, what I'm talking about uh, here is not the geriatric rock band that's been uh, searching (laughs) for satisfaction for the past half century. Uh, No, for today's journey, you need to grab your water bottle and your hat. Uh, We're walking to the top of Tel Es Sultan, the site of Old Testament Jericho. And though uh, summer is nearly a month away, it's still quite warm here in Jericho. I don't want you to become dehydrated, so make sure you're drinking enough water. There's so much we could talk about here at Jericho, you know, from the faith of Rahab 
to the capture of the city by Joshua, to Jesus's encounter with the tax collector Zacchaeus. But actually, I want to use this site as a viewing platform and look toward another place just to our north. You see that stand of tall, thin cypress trees about a mile away? Somewhere just beyond those trees is where ancient Gilgal was located. Not familiar with it? Well, it's the first place Israel camped when they entered the Promised Land. Gilgal is actually a rather playful name in Hebrew. It comes from the word galal, which means to roll an object onto something or away from something. But more about that in a minute. Israel arrived here after crossing the Jordan River, and if you remember that account, Joshua had men pick up 12 stones from the middle of the river, which Joshua then piled together at Gilgal. So in a sense, the first place the rolling stones were together was at Gilgal. But it wasn't even that pile of rocks that gave the place its name. To understand how this place got its name, I want us to look at three snapshots from Israel's time at Gilgal. Three events that forced Israel to decide which way it was going to roll. These three snapshots are found in Joshua 5. The nation was now standing in the land promised by God to Abraham 600 years earlier. The time for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham's descendants had arrived. But before Israel could move forward, they needed to reconnect to the Lord. And God captures this time of reconnection in these three vivid snapshots. Let's look at each one carefully. In the first snapshot, God commands Joshua to circumcise the men of Israel. The generation born in the wilderness had not been circumcised, had not followed God's command to Abraham. Joshua explains the problem this way. For all the people who came out of Egypt were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way had not been circumcised. At first glance, this event might appear to be nothing more than an interesting historical footnote, an explanation of why there was a slight gap in time between the crossing of the Jordan and the taking of Jericho. But the event had much greater significance, as explained by God himself in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. The action in this first photo points to the past. This new generation had to connect to the covenant God originally made with Abraham. And the sign of that covenant was circumcision. But the event had even more significance. Through this act of circumcision, God announced he had now rolled away the reproach of Egypt. The promise of deliverance from bondage in Egypt was now complete. When God first met with Moses at the burning bush, he said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. God had promised not only to deliver them out of Egypt, but to bring them into the promised land. And God had now fully kept his word. Gilgal looked back as a reminder that God was faithful and that he expected his people to be faithful as well by doing what he had commanded. We move now to the second snapshot. The focus in this picture is on the present. Watch as God connects three events in rapid succession. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month. And on the day after Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, 
but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Celebrating Passover, eating the produce of the land, having the manna cease. God had taken care of them all along the journey, but they had now reached their destination. They were in the land and could now begin experiencing all that God had promised. We look back down at the photos in our hand, and then we place the third and final snapshot on top. And the direction of action in this photo points toward the future. Joshua, the commander of the forces of Israel, now turns his attention to what lies ahead. He walks a short distance from Gilgal toward Jericho to reconnoiter the city, standing in his way. No doubt he was trying to develop a plan that would allow his band of desert warriors to somehow capture this fortified stronghold. But Joshua's concentration was broken when he looked up to see a man standing opposite him with a sword in his hand. Joshua immediately asked if this stranger was on his side or the side of the enemy. Are you for us or for our adversary? And the warrior's answer made it clear that he was no mere human soldier. Neither. Rather, I come now as captain of the host of the Lord. He then ordered Joshua to remove his shoes, for the place where you're standing is holy. I believe this man who appeared before Joshua was none other than the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus himself. But what's the purpose for his appearance? I believe it's to give Joshua clear direction for the future. Israel couldn't view God as their personal servant, a God who worked for them. Rather, God was calling on Israel to obey him. He had already told the nation that if it obeyed, he would bless. But if the nation disobeyed, his sword of judgment would be turned against them. Throughout history, nations and armies have claimed that God was on their side. But here's a clear message to Joshua and Israel, and by extension to us. The issue is not whether God is on our side, but whether we're on God's side. Gilgal and the Rolling Stones. The site may not have meant much to you before, but I hope now you'll never forget it. It's a place that forces us to look to the past, the present, and the future. And it's a location that drives home three great truths about God. What he began in you, he'll finish. What he promised to you, he'll deliver. And what he demands of you, he expects. Well, plenty to think about and maybe listen to again. We've got that available for you at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Not just Charlie's devotional here on the Rolling Stones from Joshua 5, but the entire program at thelandandthebook.org. We appreciate it when you email us, and as importantly, we appreciate it when you email this station and let them know how the broadcast is making a difference in your life. Thank you for saying thank you to this station. Drop them a postcard. Maybe give them a call. You know, everybody could use a little bit of good news. Everybody could use a thank you. And with that, we say thank you to you for making time to join us today on The Land and the Book. Thank you to Charlie Dyer. Thank you to Dan Anderson for faithfully editing and mixing everything together. Join us again next week for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.